Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded from NPR. Back in April, a couple weeks into the lockdown in California, Heather Stevens invited her parents, who are in their 70s, over to her backyard. Heather has three kids, and she knew her parents really missed seeing them. When her parents came over, everyone wore masks, Heather says, stayed six feet apart, nobody hugged. Everything was fine, she says, until her parents went home, and her brother, who lives with the parents, found out where they'd been. When my parents got home, my brother was just livid. He was very upset. Heather's brother, Chris, told us when he heard his parents had been at Heather's house, his first thought was, are you kidding? He later told Heather on the phone he just didn't think it was a good idea for her to hang out with their older parents when she didn't have to. That she'd put them and him at risk. Heather said she thought she was being safe. The masks outdoors, six feet. But Chris said there was just no way to be sure. At that point, there was a lot of things we knew, but there's a lot of things we didn't know. And it just felt careless and reckless. And it, it made me feel concerned for everybody in the situation. He said, well, Chris, you know, we don't know a lot about coronavirus, but we do know how viruses work in general. And, and you know, on a sunny day and you're outside, there's really very little chance of a virus being transmitted across six feet. Things got heated. They both hung up, feeling insulted. And he, um, you know, he hasn't spoken to me since. We haven't talked in, I think, eight weeks. Heather still disagrees with her brother, but she also wants to see him. I continue to reach out to him. My my sons, I have twins, and their birthday is next week. And I said, you know, we're just having mom and dad over for cake and pizza. If you want to come, please join us. So how that's going to play out, I'm not really sure. You know, my family is right now as we speak having a, a birthday party, you know, and I'm not there. Turns out the day we talked to Chris was the day of the twins' party, which, as you could hear, he didn't go to. Ten other people, including the kids, did go, Heather told us. And Chris says he loves his nephews, and he wishes he could have seen them. But... I still believe that it just isn't the right time. Even with masks and social distancing, I don't know, for me, it just... The only way to really be safe is just to not take risks. For weeks and weeks, when we were still under lockdown, there were pretty clear rules about what we were supposed to do. Now that things are opening up, we're having to decide for ourselves what is safe and what risks we're willing to take. The CDC has put out some guidelines on how to stay safe. But when it comes to protesting police brutality or how to be with our elderly parents or so many other interactions... We're on our own. So within families and groups of friends, people are making their own choices. And that is how the arguments can start. Before George Floyd was killed and before the protests, we reached out on social media and asked if people were having arguments over how to deal with coronavirus in their own lives. And we got hundreds of responses. Once the protest started, we decided to hold the story for a while and start reporting on the Black Lives Matter movement. And for now, we just want to share the stories we heard about arguments and conflicts and give some advice to help you make decisions going forward, including how to protest safely. So that's the show today, after this break. 
This week on It's Been a Minute, I talk out the news with my Aunt Betty. I'm more concerned about the black men that I love than anything in the world because I just don't want to get that call. Also, parenting in the age of Black Lives Matter and the history of police reform. Listen and subscribe to It's Been a Minute from NPR. Okay, we are back. And before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that for many people, staying at home and shutting out the world has not even been an option. But for some of those who do have a choice, things have gotten complicated. I'm going to let producer Chris Benderev, who talked to a lot of the people who responded to us on social media, take it from here. It starts with a simple invitation. A woman named Marion Starkey is invited to hang out with a group of friends in one of their yards. But of course, in a pandemic, nothing is simple. Marion weighs the risks. The gathering is outside, which is a plus, but the bathroom isn't. In Marion's brain, the red flags start waving. Like, what if I have to go to the bathroom and I go into their house and touch everything on my way, you know, and then leave and I'll go wash my hands. But then what are they going to wash their hands every single time they like touch a doorknob in their house? It seems like it's putting them at risk. So Marion, determined not to be the reason someone gets sick, decides to stay at home. And then a couple of hours later, I got a message from the host saying, where are you? Marion reminded the host that she'd already said she would not be attending. I hate this, the friend texted back. And I found out from um, our friends that she had cried. So, like, great. You know, now, now, like, I'm hurting people's feelings, which is not my intention at all. On the bright side, Marion and her friend are still speaking to each other, which is more than I can say for a lot of the people we heard from. I've stopped talking to her, and I won't take her calls, one woman told us about her mom. The mom had refused when the daughter pleaded with her to wear a mask. Another listener told us that I just had a friend unfriend me on social media and call me a stuck-up snob for declining to use my car to pick them up from the grocery store. And for a woman named Shaness Wood Zende, the conflict began with a call from her friend back in March. And I was like, hey, what are you doing? And she was like, um, we're on our way to the birthday party. And I was like, what birthday party? And she was like, you know, I told you my daughter's friend is having this birthday party. And I was like, why are you going there? You're going to a birthday party when we've been asked to stay home, when it's not safe to be in large numbers. Like, what are you doing? And you're putting everybody in your household at risk. To Shawness, the stakes were high. She and her friend both live in Detroit, a COVID hotspot. She's also black, and the coronavirus has infected and killed black people at disproportionately high rates. Around four hours after the first call, Shaness's friend called again and said that the party had been great. In fact, she'd just left. I was like, wait, not only did you risk everything by going to this party, but you were there with a bunch of people for four hours? What are you doing? Shaness didn't think her friend was taking the virus seriously enough. And after a few more incidents like this, she hit her breaking point. It was making me so angry every time I knew that she was going out. And even when I was trying to calm myself, like, this has nothing to do with you. This is not your business. I just couldn't stop thinking about how could you be so reckless. So I just was like, I just don't want to know about it. 
right now during this, I don't want to be around you. I don't want to know what you're doing. I, I've lost a lot of friendships because like everyone is just pretending like it's not still out there. This is a woman we're calling by her middle name, Michelle, in order to protect her privacy. Michelle's dad died of COVID in April. And ever since, she's found it too painful to talk to some of her friends who've been posting photos of themselves out at parties and bars, standing close together and not wearing masks. I mean, our worlds are just very different right now because, like, I've seen what can happen if someone gets sick and then to lose them and not have an opportunity to say goodbye and not be able to be there with them. At the root of most of these conflicts, of course, is fear. Fear of a disease that has killed more than 100,000 people in this country, and counting. Fear that can turn even the most innocuous interactions into potential threats. For a woman in Ohio, the threat came in the form of her 10-year-old neighbor, who is way too friendly to respect personal space and never wears a mask. I hate that I'm upset with a 10-year-old, the woman confessed, but... It's getting so that we can only be in our backyard, secretly. And even then, she has reached through the fence to pet my dogs. And for one family in Connecticut, the problem starts with packages. In the garage, we have boxes. We have a clean box, a one-day-old box, a two-day-old box, a three-day-old box, and stuff gets dumped into each box so it can be rotated through. So before anything enters the house, it's gone through a full 72-hour decontamination. This is a man who didn't want to be named for privacy reasons, so we'll call him by his middle initial, B. Since this all began, B and his wife and three kids get all their groceries via delivery. Milk and things that need refrigeration get wiped down first. Produce gets washed with soap and water. B is ready to scale back on all of this. But B is also a type 1 diabetic, and he's got asthma. So does his daughter. So his wife isn't ready to scale back. And she's also not ready for B to start seeing friends, even at a distance. She told me she knows she can't control the outside world. But, quote, if we stay in this house, we are not going to get it. In the last nine weeks, they've seen almost no one. And B is having a hard time with the isolation. It's depressing. And so what I need for me is some kind of path forward. And uh, I don't know, have you heard of any paths forward that make sense to you? When B asked me this, I honestly didn't know what to say. And that's because the truth is, I don't totally know what's the right way forward either. And the more people I talked to, the more I realized I am not alone in my confusion. I am starting to get to the point where I feel like, am I crazy? That's Marion. Remember, the woman who drove her friend to tears by not showing up at a get-together. Like, am I just making up these risks in my head? Like, we're missing out and we don't have to be missing out. Julia Marcus, an epidemiologist at Harvard Medical School, understands Marion's confusion. And she says if the questions you're asking yourself these days feel murkier, it's because they are. In early March, the questions were pretty easy. Um, Like, is this really going to get that bad? It's like, yeah, that's really going to get that bad. Um, Should I really cancel my vacation? Yeah, you should. But now they're much more nuanced. The questions I get are... You know, can my baby go back to her small family daycare? Can we have a play date? My kids are dying to see other kids. How can I go visit older relatives? Julia realized that with states reopening, people needed guidance that they weren't getting from the CDC. COVID hadn't gone away, but it wasn't realistic to expect people to stay away from friends and family indefinitely. 
And all of this, it actually reminded Julia of another epidemic in America. In the early days of the HIV epidemic, when there was a lot of confusion and fear around what was going on, the advice that gay men were getting for the most part was just don't have sex. That's the way to reduce risk. And that's just not sustainable for everyone indefinitely, just in the same way that abstaining from social contact is not sustainable for everyone. And what happened at the time was not that, you know, the CDC put out really helpful guidance. It was that community members worked with experts to develop safer sex guidance for their community that gave people a sense of how to have sex while keeping risk as low as possible. And I think that something similar is happening right now. We're not hearing the nuanced guidance that we need from the CDC. And so what's happening is, you know, people are like doing it themselves. (laughs) Um, And it's coming from the community in the same way that it did in those early days of AIDS. One example of those people doing it themselves these days? Julia. A few weeks ago, she posted this sort of riscometer infographic on Twitter. It was a chart with little drawings of four scenarios. And along the bottom, you can see risk increasing from left to right. All the way on the left was staying at home with your family. Then, a little riskier to the right, being outdoors with other people. Then, even riskier, gathering in groups outdoors. And finally, the riskiest, groups gathering indoors. The idea behind this infographic is a concept called harm reduction. You show people how to lower the risk, like hanging out with just a few friends outdoors with masks, and hopefully you reduce their desire to try the way riskier, more harmful options. I think what we want is to prevent those crowded house parties or crowded swim-up bar parties or whatever the case may be by giving people enough to go on while keeping their risk low. As Julia mentioned crowded pool parties, I couldn't help but think of the other end of the spectrum, the people who didn't want to go anywhere. That reluctance, Julia says, might have to do with the fact that the last big unified message we as a country received was to stay at home to flatten the curve, which Julia calls abstinence-only messaging. That message was important, and it made a difference in the initial crisis, but... A side effect of abstinence-only messaging is that people start to see risk as binary. Like, if I stay home, I won't become infected. But if I leave my house, I will become infected. But that's actually not how risk works. How how does it work? I mean, risk is not binary. You could think of risk as a probability from zero to one. You know, what's the probability I'm going to get infected in some period of time? And, you know, it's not like it switches from zero to one when you walk out your front door. Julia didn't want to weigh in on the choices of the people I interviewed. But she says that when assessing your own risk, you should consider how fast the virus is spreading where you live and how vulnerable you and the people you live with are. And remember the basics. The situations with the highest risk are being indoors, in crowds, and in close contact. My interview with Julia took place before the world knew the name George Floyd and before massive protests against police killings and systemic racism broke out across the country. The protests, for some people, were the first interactions they'd had with big groups of people since the pandemic started. And I noticed that Julia had posted a new infographic on Twitter, this time with suggestions for how to protest more safely. Stuff like, besides masks, you could also wear eye protection. Getting tear gas in your eyes can increase coughing. And because shouting spreads respiratory droplets, protesters could choose to use noisemakers or drums instead. 
you know, you can imagine somebody saying, I want to go to this protest, but I'd like to keep my risk as low as possible. So I'm going to go in a small group of people that I know, and we're all going to stick together, and we're going to carry signs, and we're not going to yell, and we're going to wear masks. Julia and other public health experts say that there's a lot the police can do to make protests safer, too. Like not firing tear gas at protesters in the first place, and not cornering or crowding them, or arresting them into vans and jails, which are indoor spaces where the virus can spread easily. For all her recommendations, though, there was one recommendation that Julia did not make. She didn't say protesters shouldn't be out on the streets. So is it fair to say this is another moment to weigh benefits and risks of anything um, yes, like we were talking absolutely. about? Right. So this is a moment when protesters are weighing the risks and benefits. And some are saying when interviewed, I'm here because the risk of my being murdered by police in broad daylight on the street feels greater than the risk of COVID. Last week, a reporter for ProPublica named Akila Johnson interviewed Black protesters in Washington, D.C. And she found that not only had the threat of COVID not stopped them from protesting, but COVID and how it disproportionately hurts Black communities had actually been one of the reasons to protest. When you ask protesters if they are aware of COVID, if they are worried about contracting COVID, yes, they are very aware of both of those things. They are also equally aware that it is their community that is bearing the brunt of this pandemic. Akila wrote in her story, when speaking out against the loss of Black lives, it is tough to separate those who die at the hands of police from those who die in a pandemic that has laid bare the structural racism baked into the American health system. Floyd himself had tested positive for the coronavirus. One of the protesters Akila interviewed was a 20-year-old college senior named Caleb Jordan who said despair and anger over Black lives lost to racism had been keeping him up at night. And he makes a comment to me about if we're not dying by police brutality, we're dying, you know, in a hospital bed from the pandemic. Caleb came to the protest with his 62-year-old grandmother, who said being there with her grandson was too important to miss. The whole time, Caleb was really protective of his grandma. The two of them had a conversation before they went. They both wore masks. He brought extra frozen water for her to drink. He was very kind of insistent, almost mother hen-like, that she not go too deep in the crowd, that she stay kind of on the outskirts. But at the end of the day, both of them felt the magnitude of the moment outweighed the very real potential of contracting COVID-19. You can find Akilah Johnson's story on Black protesters' worries over racial disparities in health at ProPublica.org. This episode was reported and produced by Chris Benderev and edited by Tom Dreisbach, Lisa Pollock, and me, with additional editing from Karen Grigsby-Bates, Rebecca Hersher, and Keith Woods. Huge thanks to all the people who wrote to us and talked to us for this story. Music in this episode was by Ramtin Arablouei and Blue Dot Sessions. You can hit us up with your story from the protests and the pandemic by emailing embedded at npr.org or on Twitter at NPR Embedded. We'll be back soon with more. Thanks. <laughs>